Hello and welcome back to Not Just Paleo. I'm your host, Evan Brand. Today we're talking with Dr. Stephen Alardi. Now he wrote the book that I found, I don't know where I found his book, but it's called The Depression Cure. You may or may not have heard about it. And this is a book that really outlines some of the basic foundations that humans need to have in place to be healthy. Basically, the idea is that depression is a disease of civilization, if I were to categorize what he actually means. Depression is something that's not seen in hunter-gatherer societies, and so we talk about that a little bit in this episode, and how despite various diseases and infant mortality and all of the horrible things that could be experienced in more indigenous cultures, they're not depressed. And some of these cultures don't even have a word for happy. They just are happy, something that so many of us struggle to be. We just, we just want to be happy. And as you may know, depression was one of the biggest symptoms or issues that I had that really got me into the health space in the first place. I improved my nutrition, and my depression was still there. I improved my exercise. Depression was still there. I improved my supplementation. It was still there. It wasn't until I fixed my circadian rhythm and really started paying attention to electromagnetic fields and light exposure, that's what fixed my depression. Anyhow, schedule a free call with myself back at the website, notjustpaleo.com, and now let's get into the show. Enjoy. Stephen Alardi, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm glad we could connect together. I found your book, I think at a local bookstore, probably... What's it been? Five, ten years ago, maybe, at this point, the depression cure. And I was like, wow, this guy has it figured out. Finally, someone saying that drugs are not the answer and that they are not as effective as the advertisements tell you they are. And that you can actually get better by modifying your lifestyle and trying to basically embrace some of the paleo principles, really, without really directly saying that. Things like sunlight, things like exercise, all of that. It's so beautiful. So... Thanks for joining me, and thanks for writing the book, seriously. Well, I, I really appreciate your saying that. It's, it's, it's very kind. I, I, I guess just a couple points of clarification. Uh, the first thing I want to make sure everybody understands is, is that the message of the book and, and really the, the take-home message of my research in the field of depression over 20 years, it's not that um, medications are uniformly bad. It's not that they're uniformly ineffective. It's not an anti-medication sort of screed. Um, but rather, it's a much more realistic recognition of the fact that we have, for example, I mean, this is uh, always striking for me to think about. In the past 20 years, in the past 20 years, there's been a 300% increase in antidepressant use in the U.S., we now know from the Centers for Disease Control that tracks these sort of things, one out of every five Americans is currently taking a psychiatric med, and the majority of those are antidepressants. One out of every nine Americans aged 12 and above is currently on an antidepressant. And yet, with all of this medication that we're throwing at the problem of, of depression, the actual prevalence of the disorder, the actual total number of Americans that are suffering from the illness continues to go up. So we have an epidemic, we're throwing mountains of medication at it, and we haven't moved the needle one iota. And that should tell us a lot of different things. I mean, the first thing it should tell us is that we're not going to solve the problem through medication alone. And the dirty little secret, you alluded to it earlier, is that while the medications do help some people with depression, they are not nearly as effective as most people would 
like them to be, or as most people believe they are. And in fact, uh, if you look at the data where the meds are compared head-to-head against just a placebo, so a, a medically inert gel cap that people think might have medication, the separation between the two is pretty minimal. In fact, on a 60-point rating scale of depression severity, the average outcome in meta-analytic trials that sum together all kinds of different studies, the average difference is about three points between medication and placebo on a 60-point scale. In other words, pretty trivial difference for the average patient. So really, uh, about 10 years ago, in my research group, we got together poring over these data, and we just, you know, shaking our heads, said, we've got to do better. There has to be a better way. And thankfully, that was about the time that we had an epiphany that was basically uh, of the form that depression, this epidemic, is largely driven by the way we live, the fact that we're living a lifestyle that our bodies, our brains, our genes were never selected for, never adapted for, never designed for. Well said. So maybe you could outline some of the things that modern man and woman are doing that are not satisfying those genes, therefore resulting in some of this depression. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so so the catalyst for this insight really was just stumbling across the work of an anthropologist. It's kind of fun in the scientific realm when those of us in one field, so my my background, my training, I'm a clinical psychologist, but have have had a lot of training in neuroscience. So I really come at things from a very sort of natural science perspective. But, you know, here I have this colleague in a completely different field in anthropology. His name, this guy's name was Edward Schieffelin. And he lived among a uh, uh, Aboriginal group of people in Papua New Guinea. They're in the highlands, so up in the mountains. They're called the Kaluli people. And there are about 2,000 members of the greater Kaluli uh, tribes separated among several little hunter-gatherer clans. And Shiflin was really interested in the extent to which people living an Aboriginal sort of lifestyle, which of course is very similar to the way our ancestors lived generation after generation for hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, until 10,000 years ago, virtually every human on the planet was a hunter-gatherer. Um, what Shifalin found was that the Kaluli, despite leading very hard lives, almost never got depressed. And this was really remarkable because they have lots of things happen to them that should be able to cause depression. They would, they would cause depression among Americans because we seem to be very fragile when it comes to depression. So they were getting depressed. They were, they were not getting depressed even though they have a high rate of infant mortality and they have a high rate of parasitic infection and a high rate of death due to violence. Um, so we started thinking about, to answer your question, what is it that the Kaluli are doing that is protecting them. What is it that our ancestors almost certainly were doing for hundreds of thousands of years to protect them from depressive illness? Because let's you know, keep in mind the fact that if, if one of our hunter-gatherer ancestors was cut down with depressive illness, which robs people of their energy, robs them of their ability to function cognitively, robs them of their memory, their attention, their um, restful sleep, um, their ability basically to love and work and play, it, the fitness cost would have been enormous. In other words, basically, depression in the ancestral environment would have been more or less a death sentence for many of our ancestors. So the things that we immediately identified that hunter-gatherers do, that we don't do, um, 
are, are really very simple, very basic. We found six right away. I mean, and, and this was just, I can still remember the lab meeting with my grad students sitting around a table, and we're just tossing things out, knowing the depression literature, knowing which things that we do affect how our brain functions, how our mind functions. Here they are. I'll give you the six really quickly, and then we can take a deeper dive on any that you want. Um, well, for one thing, they're much more physically active, and modern Americans are notoriously sedentary. We don't move. We sit all day, and, you know, it's been said, I think, very aptly, sitting is the new smoking. We now have mountains of evidence that being sedentary is, is really toxic to the body, and it turns out really toxic to the brain, very, very depressogenic, something that can trigger depression. Physical movement turns out to be potently antidepressant. And, we, and again, we can take a deeper dive in that if you'd like. Number two, radical differences in diet. The ancestral diet, the paleo diet, of course, is, is very top-heavy in healthy fats. And, the, uh, and by healthy, I mean typically um, fats that nourish the brain, nourish the body, and tend to be anti-inflammatory in their net benefit. The modern American diet is really top-heavy in heavily processed fats and often uh, fats that are pro-inflammatory. And in fact, the ratio, the balance of uh, omega-6 fats, which are inflammatory generally, and omega-3s, which are anti-inflammatory, that ratio used to be about 1 to 1 in the ancestral diet. Now it's about 20 to 1 in favor of inflammation with the, the modern American diet. So huge implications. You mentioned sunlight being outside. Um, you know, basically modern life is a life spent indoors. And it turns out that indoor lighting is about 100 times dimmer uh, than being outside on a bright sunny day. And this has huge implications for brain function and for the functioning of our body clock and biological rhythms. Why? Because our brain is designed with a key assumption in mind, and that is that we're going to be outside getting basically a reset of our body clock and our biological rhythms with the, the, the huge contrast between the intensity of light uh, when you're outside at night under starlight, under moonlight, where the, the intensity is about one lux versus being outside on a sunny day, uh, an hour after sunrise, it's 100,000 lux. And most Americans just don't get that anymore. Uh, a couple other things I think that are really important, sleep. It's been estimated that hunter-gatherers tend to get about nine to 10 hours of sleep a night. They don't have artificial lighting, and so it's dark uh, for you know, a good, good 10, 11-hour stretch. They spend most of that time sleeping. Modern Americans get only about six and a half hours sleep a night as adults, and this is just not enough. Sleep is often very fragmented, and um, this has, again, really big implications for the way the brain functions. We also tend to be very socially isolated, and that's a, a huge contrast to the way our ancestors lived, where they were embedded in rich, dense social networks. They had FaceTime most of the day, nearly every day, with the people that meant the most to them. In contrast, modern Americans spend a lot of their time interacting with screens, not with people. Um, hugely toxic psychologically. Yeah, it's funny you said FaceTime, because now we have a FaceTime app instead of the real thing. <laughs> Yeah, how ironic, right? It, it, but it's absolutely true. And in fact, the problems, uh, one thing that really alarms me as a clinician, as a researcher, is the problem seems to be getting worse and worse with every successive generation. So, for example, if you look at the rates of depression among young people today, if you look at the rates of depression among 
high school students, college students, they are dramatically higher than the rates of depression among those same cohorts, say, a generation ago. And what we're finding is, of course, that current high schoolers, current college kids are far more sedentary, they're far more socially isolated, and um, they spend so much more time interacting with screens. And it turns out the average adolescent today is interacting with a screen for over nine hours a day. Yep, I believe it. Wow. Yeah, so it, it makes perfect sense. And this research and all of the work you were doing, that was, was that a decade ago at this point? We, yeah, let's see. So it, I, it was a lab meeting at the end of 2004, excuse me, of 2004. So a little over a decade ago, we began launching our very first pilot intervention. And by the way, the, the, the therapy that we've developed, we call it therapeutic lifestyle change or TLC. And so it's a lifestyle-based intervention for depression. The idea is that in essence, we can identify the healing habits of the past and help patients weave them back into the fabric of modern day life. And so it was about a decade ago that we very first began piloting a lifestyle-based intervention. So it's built around six modifiable lifestyle factors. I think I've mentioned each of them. I might have missed one in there, but um, physical activity and, and by that, you know, exercise is kind of a four-letter word uh, for a lot of people, but it does have an exercise component, a dietary component, a sleep component, a bright light component, a social component, and then uh, I guess the one that I didn't mention directly um, is we, we teach depressed individuals not to, when they're isolated, not to sit and, and brood on their negative thoughts. It's a, it's a toxic process we refer to as rumination yeah. or dwelling on, brooding on their negative thoughts. And so the antidote to rumination uh, tends to be engaging activity. Now, that's often social activity, but it doesn't have to be. So if we're alone, when we're alone, we do tend to drift into rumination when left to our own devices. But we can, by being mindful of that tendency, we can learn how to redirect our thoughts away from those sort of toxic um, ruminative processes uh, onto much more productive, positive types of, of, of activity. That's excellent. So you released your work before the iPhone. So the iPhone came out June 29th of 07. That's right. Yeah. Although the, the book you mentioned, um, so the, the depression cure, uh, by the way, I love, I love that humble little title. It's, 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 it's one of those things. I, I mean, it, I stand by it because of course, um, what it's really saying and the message of the book is that we don't currently have a cure for depression with our current armamentarium of drugs, with our traditional forms of psychotherapy. And by the way, I was trained in those traditional forms of psychotherapy. I think they can be helpful for some depressed patients, but the majority do not find a lasting cure. And yet, through adopting a therapeutic lifestyle, a lifestyle that is intrinsically antidepressant and capable of changing the brain in healthy ways, then we truly can work toward an enduring cure. That book came out in 2009, and it was really based on so many requests that we were getting as our work on this protocol, TLC, started to become known uh, among patients and among clinicians nationally. 
a, a lot of folks asked me, you know, would you consider just writing in trade book fashion, writing up a, a sort of a self-help version of this program? And I have to be honest, Evan, I had, I had really mixed feelings about it for, for a number of reasons. But um, one of the biggest is when we do this TLC program with our own patients here locally, and many of them have been, um, you know, really severely debilitated by their illness. And most of the patients that we've worked with have tried meds and have not found the, the solution they were seeking. So they've tried the meds and they didn't get a favorable response. They've tried traditional therapy and it didn't really get them where they wanted to be. So, you know, we pour a lot of resources into our patients. And what I mean by that is even though these are very doable lifestyle changes, changing behavior can be a challenge, as you may know from your own experience. I mean, you think about all the people that make a New Year's resolution, um, and by February 1, you know, that resolution is, is in the rearview mirror, and it, it hasn't happened. Um, and so when, when we first started putting this program together, I had a lot of colleagues, I had lots of folks um, who've been working with depressed populations for a long time tell me, okay, Steve, these components of your program, yes, the research says they can be helpful. This may be a great way to go, but these are all the very things that people can't do when they're depressed because, of course, depression robs us of our energy, robs us of our ability to initiate things, robs us of our motivation. And, you know, so I, I took that challenge very seriously. And, and one of the ways in which we took it so seriously is we said, we're going to set our patients up for success. And what I mean by that is we've helped provide them with the structure, with the, the encouragement, with the coaching, um, with all the little reminders that they would need to be able to implement these sorts of changes. We made it as simple as, as possible. Um, and, and so for, I'll just give you a bit, you know, real practical example. Um, there's really good research to show that if somebody has been sedentary and physically inactive for a long time, that they're going to find it very challenging to begin exercising on a regular basis. Now, it turns out it doesn't take a lot of exercise to have an antidepressant effect on the brain. The best research, and it was conducted at my alma mater, Duke University, shows that it, all it takes to have an antidepressant effect for a majority of patients is 30 minutes of aerobic activity three times a week. And that's a fairly low dose, right? I mean, I think most of us, when we think about, well, I'm going to really get fit, we're thinking about something more than 30 minutes three times a week. That's an antidepressant dose. But we, we don't just hand our patients a sheet of paper with the recommendations and guidelines and say, okay, good luck with that. Go get your 30 minutes three times a week. No, we set them up with their own personal trainer. We don't just set them up with the trainer. We have the trainer come in and meet with them and they get their calendars out while they're both together and they map in blocks of time where they're going to meet together. So there's an accountability piece, there's a, a scheduling piece, there's a reminder piece. Um, 30 minutes before the first workout, the patient is going to get a, a, a call or, or a text, you know, hey, um, Mrs. Jones, this is Biff, your trainer, we're, we're scheduled, just a reminder, we're scheduled to meet in a half hour, we're gonna go, um, believe it or not, uh, for a lot of them, it's going to be a brisk walk. turns out that, that when somebody's been sedentary for a long time, just taking a brisk walk, I mean like you're late for, say, the, 
you know, late for a flight, late for the bus, walking like you mean it, that could be aerobic. That's excellent. Um, That's great news. Yeah, so, so, you know, given how much structure and support that we provide for our patients, I really had mixed feelings about putting all this material in a book. And one of the things that I say right in the intro is, is um, listen, um, most of our patients have found it incredibly important to have someone partner with them um, to, to help them get these different elements of therapeutic lifestyle integrated into their day-to-day life. And you might want to consider um, enlisting the help and support of a trained behavior therapist or someone else even. It could be, I mean, you know, and I've had literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, I guess, thousands of readers write me over the last seven years um, that have, have told me about, well, you know, my, my mom, um, I got the book and, and my mom read it and she partnered with me or my, my pastor par- partnered with me or, um, you know, my best friend. But for a whole lot of them, it, it, it has been a therapist. Now, having said all that, I will also say the big pleasant surprise has been that many, many individuals have been so tormented by their depression for so long, they read the book and they start to feel a spark of hope and they start to feel the sense of, oh my God, this makes so much sense to me that if I'm only throwing meds at the problem and yet the way I'm living is toxic, that, you know, cleaning up my life could actually be the catalyst to get me the relief that I need. And so many of them, because of that spark of hope, have actually been able to start taking little baby steps in the right direction. I got, a, I got an email two days ago from someone in Texas, and he said, I've been struggling with depression for 20 years. I was to the point where I lost all hope. I was suicidal. I was making plans. I stumbled across a TED Talk that you did, started looking into your work, and I thought, what the hell? I'm gonna, just going to go out and do one thing I know I can do. The easiest part of the protocol, by the way, by far, is getting uh, high-quality fish oil capsules because we were talking earlier about healthy dietary fats. Well, omega-3 fats are found in abundance in fish oil very, in a very concentrated form. And so he took that one step. That was what he could do. And he said within a couple of weeks, he had noticed profound changes in the severity of his depression, profound relief. And that was enough to be the catalyst to get him moving in other um, healthy and productive directions. So, um, you know, I do think it's possible for some to make these changes completely on their own. But the, the, the clinician in me always wants to see folks when they're suffering have additional help, just to be sure. Totally. So what dose have you used most effectively? Because I've seen a, a gram a day about is about the minimum that I use in my patients. Now, sometimes I'll go up two, three, four grams a day, but I've seen some talk. Now, I don't know if this is research. I can't remember where I've read, but seeing even greater antidepressant effects closer to five to 10 grams. So the important molecule uh, molecular version of omega-3s when it comes to depression. It's a molecule called EPA, which stands for eicosapentaenoic acid. Um, If somebody wants to look it up, they can just go on the Googles and and type omega-3 and EPA. Now, the reason this this molecule is so important is because it is the building block 
of a wide array of different hormones in the body that have a nice anti-inflammatory benefit. And what I mean by that, you know, I mean, everybody has sort of an intuitive idea of what inflammation is, but it, it, the inflammation in, in a nutshell is the body's native immune system, not acquired immunity, like if, if you're vaccinated for something and now your immune system has a very specific target to go after, but this is the general purpose immune system. Um, when we get a splinter, we have inflammation at the site of, of the splinter because our native immune system goes there and says, we're going to make sure that any type of pathogen that happens to be in the neighborhood, we're going to wipe it out. Problem is, when you have a lot of inflammation, then your immune system is kind of on a hair trigger alert, and it's almost like it thinks your body is riddled with splinters, riddled with potential invaders. Well, that takes a very big toll on the brain, and it turns out that the inflamed brain is usually a depressed brain. Not everyone with depression has high levels of inflammation, but most do. And it's believed that the antidepressant benefit of fish oil is due to this anti-inflammatory action of EPA. So not all fish oil capsules are created equally. Some have a high level of concentration of EPA. It uh, may be high because the particular fish fish species that the oil was derived from is EPA dense. It may be high because the fish oil has been processed and concentrated to have a higher concentration of EPA. But here's the thing. I, I want your listeners, when they are shopping for fish oil, to be looking specifically, to basically ignore the number of milligrams of fish oil in the capsule. That doesn't matter. To ignore the number of milligrams of omega-3, that doesn't matter because there are lots of kinds of omega-3s that aren't necessarily anti-inflammatory. What they should focus on is the milligrams of EPA. That's the active ingredient. And the best research supports an antidepressant dose of at least 1,000 milligrams per day of EPA. Now, if somebody has a really concentrated form of fish oil, for example, there's one made by, and I have no financial stake in this company, but uh, Now Foods has uh, a, a capsule, it's, it happens to be very affordable, called um, uh, Ultimate EPA, and I, I believe it has 500 milligrams of EPA per capsule. So that antidepressant dose would, would be um, had just within two capsules. Now, um, some patients, as you mentioned, will do even better on higher doses. There was a recent meta-analysis, which is like a study of studies of the antidepressant effect of EPA for depression, and that meta-analysis suggested that there may be a dose-response curve such that more could be better, at least for some patients. So um, I've had patients that have done better on 2,000 milligrams of EPA per day than 1,000. Uh, and so there may be some room for experimentation there. We have to be careful, though. When we go into higher doses of fish oil, and, and particularly of omega-3s, um, there's an antiplatelet effect. So basically a blood thinning effect. And so anyone who is on any, any sort of blood thinning medication or anyone who bruises easily really should probably confer with, with their doctor about this. Um, if, they're on a, if they're on a blood thinning medication, they absolutely have to let their physician, their prescribing physician know if they're going to be taking a high dose of fish oil because it really can have uh, pretty profound consequences if they don't. Definitely. Yeah, so in terms of the highest dose that you've ever used, because here's the thing I'm thinking about too and why I'm hesitant to go much more 
much above two grams is just because a lot of people, for one, they've had their gallbladders removed, and so they already are at a deficit there with their bile being able to break down these fatty acids. And then, two, most people have very bad digestion, low stomach acid levels where they can't even digest these things. So most of the time, if I'm Uh using fish oil, I'm using enzymes with it at the same time just to make sure people can even break this stuff down and they're not just making you know expensive pills that just go in their body and don't do anything what's the highest that you've gone with dosing i've got a colleague who has bipolar illness and he has bipolar type 2 which is the the less severe form of bipolar and he basically decided at one point that he was having such severe side effects from every type of medication, every mood stabilizer that he'd ever tried, that he, he, against medical advice, went off all of his medications and decided that he was going to try to fight it purely with lifestyle change. Now, the one big advantage he had going for him is that he owns a CrossFit gym. And he, you know, if you think about 30 minutes of exercise three times a week, being antidepressant, imagine uh, two hours a day, <laughs> six, six days a week. So he, he had a huge built-in benefit there. He decided to go up to 6,000 milligrams a day, of, which would be six grams a day of, of EPA. And he did that for a couple of years, seemed to benefit um, quite a bit from it, but eventually his platelet count got too low, as you, you might imagine right. it would. Um, and, and so I, I encouraged him. I mean, I encouraged him to talk to, to his doctor about it, but said, look, you know, there's really not a lot of research evidence that you're getting a lot of extra benefit once you go above 2,000 or 2 grams of EPA per day. Um, a couple of other things that we might want to talk about, though, just really quickly with, with fish oil. One is that there, there are different ways in which that EPA molecule can be bound up in, in a capsule. And the most common right now, believe it or not, is the, the manufacturers will, almost every manufacturer that puts out a fish oil product um, will try to purify it. They, they want to um, basically strip out and molecularly distill the oil so they can strip out all the potential toxins that can accumulate in tissues of fish, things like mercury and lead and PCBs and so forth. But what they do is after they've basically used enzymes and other processes to dissolve all the molecular bonds so they can filter out everything that's not the, the um, active ingredient um, omega-3s, when they reconstitute it, they do so in a way that's a bit unnatural. And, and what I mean is they take a, uh, an alcohol uh, base, it's, it's ethyl, um, and, and they use that as the backbone. So they now have something called an ethyl ester where they have the free fatty acids, so this would be, say, EPA or DHA or other forms of omega-3, and it's um, built around a backbone of ethyl. And what that means is that it, um, it's, it's quite dense, which is great because now you can have a smaller capsule and deliver a bigger dose of, say, EPA. The bad news is that the body can't use it as efficiently. In fact, um, whenever we think of alcohol being processed by the body, we immediately think, oh, that's got to go to the liver. And this is exactly right. So until that, so let's say, you know, I I swallow a capsule and it's delivering omega-3s 
on the backbone of alcohol, well, that capsule, when it digests in the gut, it's absorbed, it's in the bloodstream, but that fish oil has to go now to my liver, which is going to cleave off that ethyl backbone. And now I've got free fatty acid in the neighborhood of my liver. Well, free fatty acid floating out in the bloodstream is kind of a sitting duck for any sort of um, oxidizing compounds. So, um, you know, we, we sort of intuitively know that fish oil and oxygen don't mix very well because, you know, the, the oxygen, as fish oil gets oxidized, it can go rancid. It can, can become um, spoiled and unuseful. Well, free fatty acid can get oxidized in the body as well. Um, what has to happen to deliver the free fatty acid to our brain is it has to get reconstituted into a form known as a triglyceride. Now, triglycerides have a very bad reputation because some of them um, can be harmful, but it's actually the natural form in which the body is able to use fatty acids, transport them, and use them in the body. All right. Now, that's all, I know that's a, a lot of kind of deep biochemistry, but the reason I'm, I'm mentioning it is there's one major manufacturer right now that is delivering omega-3s, EPA, in its natural triglyceride form. And the evidence so far is that this has an enormous advantage in terms of bioavailability and almost certainly in terms of keeping us from having these sort of toxic oxidized fatty acids spilling around in our bloodstream after we've swallowed the fish oil. So again, I have no financial interest in this company, but um, many people have heard of them. They're called Nordic, Nordic Naturals. And Nordic Naturals has their fish oil, their omega-3s, in natural triglyceride form. And as a result, many people find not only do they get a, a, a better response to the omega-3s delivered in this fashion, but they also, because it's so much more bioavailable, may not even have to, to take as large a dose. So back to your, your question about people, say, um, by virtue of not having a gallbladder, not being as fatty tolerant, or <clears throat> even by virtue of um, having uh, weakened stomach acid. Yeah, well said. Yeah, and I actually, I use a professional healthcare company that makes my fish oil, and I use the triglyceride form myself. The ethyl ester, people out there, if you get fish burps, that's a good sign that you're getting the ethyl ester form, which you don't want. So if you ever take a capsule 30 minutes later, you're burping fish, assume that it's ethyl ester. There are some cases I've seen where people just have bad digestion, but typically assume that it's the triglyceride form that you're looking for, and you're not getting it. Well, yeah, and, and to the fishy burps, which I, I think probably a lot of folks have, have encountered, uh, they can also occur as, as a result of, of the fish oil being processed under oxygen rather than under nitrogen. So it, it can even just be an indication that once the, the capsule has dissolved in the stomach, that now a sort of semi-rancid fish oil is spilling out into the stomach, and, and we're reacting to that with some stomach discomfort and, and the, the burping. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I always tell our patients, if, if you're ever having that reaction, it's a sign that you need to cross over to a different brand um, and, and preferably one that's, that's a higher quality. And, and you know, I, as you can tell, I'm a big fan of the triglyceride form. Totally. Excellent. That's awesome. Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad to get your, your backing on that front. So let's talk about the aboriginals again. There's a book, and I read the book. You'll have to remind me of what the book's called. But you actually worked alongside this person. You chatted with this anthropologist. Do you remember what book I'm thinking of? This has got to be the same person. 
that wrote the book I, about I, the experiences in with with these hunter gatherers or the tribal people. I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, Jared Diamond uh, wrote, a, wrote a, uh, a phenomenal book recently uh, based on his experiences in New Guinea called The World Until Yesterday. Now, Jared Diamond, many um, people will, will know of his work, the more famous work, Guns, Germs, and Steel, um, which um, has had a big impact on a lot of folks in thinking about why um, civilization and technology emerge in some parts of the world and not others. But um, you're right. That was it. It it was Jared Diamond. I'm glad. Yeah, I I don't I I don't know. I don't know Dr. Diamond, but, um, you know, his work has has certainly been um, hugely influential for me and for many others. I mean, again, you know, all of us, I think, who are who are in the sort of broader paleo ish community um, are, I, I think, really keenly interested in the question um, of mismatch, you know, how is it that 21st century industrialized or post-industrialized westernized um, life is posing evolutionarily novel challenges for the genome, for the brain, for the body. And, and so, you know, one of the things that I loved about Jared Diamond's work is by being embedded for so long with so many different aboriginal groups who live more or less to a first approximation the way our ancestors lived prior to the agrarian revolution, prior to certainly the industrial revolution, that experience of embeddedness has given him, I think, a wonderful perspective on all the different areas in which their lives differ from our own in ways that um, as we use them to hold up a mirror to our, our, ourselves in our current 21st century existence, we start to get insights into, oh, wait a minute, maybe, maybe we're not really as adapted as we think to sitting on our butt all day in front of a screen, um, to chowing down lots of fast food, to, to getting um, only six hours sleep a night, to masking our sleep debt with stimulants all day long, to, I mean, you know, all the things that we just sort of take for granted as features of modern life. And I think most people that I talk with now, and I spend a lot of time, you know, I teach large classes at, at the University of Kansas where, where I'm on faculty. I address the public in, in lectures every, you know, every few months. And I can tell you, Evan, I, I, I almost never speak to an audience where there isn't just a roar of, of positive recognition of the idea that, that the way in which we live is toxic. And, and everyone understands that something is amiss. And, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, Jean Twenge, who's a, a research psychologist at University, um, Cal State San Diego. I was going to say uh, UCSD, but it's Cal State San Diego. Um, she recently had a finding that the, uh, get this, that we have longitudinal survey data on psychological well-being going back to the 1950s. So here's the finding. The average high school student in the U.S. today, the average high school student, has an anxiety level that is on par with the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Wow. Yeah. You said high yeah. school, right? High school. Wow. Right. Because remember I, I said earlier that every successive generation in this country is becoming more and more psychologically disordered. And, you know, we're finding with rates of depression. So the lifetime rate of clinical depression in the U.S. right now, it's estimated that by age 75, 
one in four Americans will be cut down by depressive illness. And, and again, I'm not talking about just run-of-the-mill sadness. I'm talking about an illness that robs people of their ability to function in every domain and that can be life-threatening because, of course, when people are clinically depressed, they become very hopeless and they're in great pain. The pain circuitry of the brain lights up and they're in agony. And many depressed individuals start to think about death as a possible means of escape. All right, so the statistic you just mentioned, the one in four, is just mind-blowing. And I know we're running out of time. We have just a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to get your... Go ahead, Stephen. Well, what I was going to say is just to, to, to bring it back around full circle, one in four lifetime, but get this, among current college-age students, the rate of lifetime depression for them is already one in four. In other words, at age 21, they already have experienced the same toll of depression as their grandparents by the time they have reached old age. What that means is if we extrapolate out for that generation, our current high school and college kids, they probably will have a lifetime rate of depression exceeding 50% if we don't do something to turn this around. And it's absolutely staggering and tragic. Wow, it is catastrophic. My wife and I have talked about this. The people that we know, whether it was from college, from high school, people in their mid to late 20s, early to mid 30s, we tried, we literally sat down together, Steve, and we wrote down a list of everyone. We came up with no one that was not depressed at some level. The only person we could come up with, even you know, family that we thought of, was my grandfather. He's the only guy mm-hmm. we could come up with. All of our friends, our cousins, everyone, 20s, 30s, no one fit the bill for someone I would consider not affected by depression. So I, I'm seeing the epidemic, and I've seen it over the past five, six years just intensify, and I'm glad to hear not necessarily more people are getting depressed, but I'm glad to to learn that I'm not crazy and that the research and all the work you're doing is showing the exact same thing that I can sense when I go walk down the street. I can just feel it in the air, and it's and it's frightening. Absolutely, but but you know, and I think you've hit on something that's really important, which is for so many of our patients, when we present them with this model and say, look, you are not only, A, you're not alone, B, this is not your fault. C, it makes sense because you were never designed for the sedentary, indoor, socially isolated, fast food-laden, frenzied pace of 21st century American life. And people get it, and they feel this enormous sense of validation and relief. And here's the needle that we try to thread. On the one hand, we say, look, this is not your fault. And yet, at the same time, we say, and you can still be empowered to make changes in how you live that will allow you to thrive and flourish, even in the 21st century, even in this modern industrialized culture. But what it means is you're going to have to go against the grain of culture just a bit here and there in ways that will really benefit your body and your brain. Yeah, amen. I just wanted to get your take on social media. I know it's a tool. I know it can be a double-edged sword, but I wanted to get your kind of takeaway on that because people are relying on the Facebook pictures and Instagram pictures and Twitter and all of these places for social interaction. Is that good? Is that bad? Can it be both? What do you think overall? Well, I think overall on balance for the average person, probably toxic. And there's a lot of evidence, a lot of research support for that premise now. Does that mean for every single person they should completely blow up all their media accounts and and, um, never go online? (sighs) 
Maybe. Yeah, there, yeah, maybe. There are exceptions. I mean, I, genuinely, I do know people that have used Facebook to reconnect with old college friends, and it's, it's been a positive thing for them in balance. But for most of us, uh, okay, here's the problem, just in a nutshell. A, we're spending too much time interacting with screens, not enough time interacting with the actual people in our lives who matter to us. We need to be basically away from the screens and out in the world of people and things that we were designed to be interacting with. B, social media tends to cause people to feel insecure and envious. They're seeing, for most people, a kind of image and not the reality, and they're honing in on things that they feel are superior in the lives of folks that they consider their their, uh, comparison group, their peer group, and it makes them feel bad about themselves. Um, C, they're hearing a lot of negative news about the world. Now, you know, not all of our news comes from social media, but a fair amount of it can for a lot of people. And here's the thing. The world is not as bad as most people believe it is. Why? Because good stuff doesn't make the news. The news is about if it bleeds, it leads. In a a global community of 7.2 billion people, there's always tragic stuff happening somewhere. And if we're bombarded with news of that all the time and not commensurately bombarded with news of all the positive things and all the bad things that didn't happen, then we get a very biased, jaundiced perspective and we start to think that we're living in a world that's going to hell in a handbasket when the objective empirical reality is this is one of the safest, most flourishing times in human history and we don't know it. Absolutely. I saw an article, I believe I actually got the article from social media, but it was an article stating that exact fact. I want to say it was an anthropologist. I'll have to figure out what it was, but it was saying... Uh, well, it, it may well have been um, actually one of my intellectual heroes, Steven Pinker. Uh, he's a fellow psychologist. He's at Harvard. He's written a book called um, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, and I would encourage everyone to put it on their reading list. But he wrote an article just a few weeks ago. I actually posted it on my my Twitter account. Yeah, that's the one posted it posted it on my Twitter account, where he basically said, Look, you you know, you you think that the the world is 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 blowing up, you think it's going to hell, think again. Um, Because the the objective data suggest that believe it or not, I mean, even when it comes to something like death due to terrorist violence, the world is objectively safer today on balance than it was say 40 years ago. Uh, the level of crime is half what it was in this country, violent crime, half what it was in the 1980s. And um, nobody seems to realize that. Why? Because of the way in which our world is presented to us in media, including social media. And so there's very strong scientific support for this premise. If you stop watching the news, if you stop using social media, you will be objectively more happy. I agree. I'm so glad that you're connected with the other Steve, and for people that want to look it up, type it in. Just type in Steven Pinker, and you type in like "world falling apart," and you'll find it. Or uh, go on Mr. Alardi's uh, social media pages; you can find him, and you can find this article. He has dozens, dozens of historical graphs from the Bureau of Justice Statistics and all sorts of places, looking at partner violence going down, homicides are down, victimization at school is down. Everything that's bad is down, yet everyone is perceiving that everything's worse, bullying and all of this stuff. And if you really look at the data, it's not. It is mind-blowing, and it's it's almost hard to, to digest it. It really is. 
Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, and, and, and I just find myself shaking my head when I think back. Now, I'm an old guy. I mean, I'm, I'm in my 50s. And when I think back to my childhood and how not only my parents, but the parents of every single one of my friends let us have the run of the neighborhood where, you know, we were unsupervised from the time we were seven, eight years old, running around basically till our parents would come out on the front stoop and call us in for dinner, you know, whatever, when it was getting dark. And now this sort of free-range childhood is, is just, a, you know, it's a rarity. It's, a, it's largely a thing of the past. Why? Because parents perceive that it's such a dangerous world. But objectively, there are fewer kids abducted by strangers uh, per capita now than there were when I was a child. Uh, and we've robbed an entire generation of kids of that wonderful and I would say antidepressant experience of free-range childhood. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I know we're out of time. We're going to have to do this again real soon. Thanks so much. Give people some resources where they can keep up with you. And hell, if they want to come take your class, they can come to the University of Kansas. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yeah, they can. Although we, we just kicked off the semester yesterday, and, and uh, I'm sad to say my, my personality class is full at 270 students. But um, they, can, they can find me, yeah, on Twitter, um, at, at Dr. Alardi. Um, I'm on Facebook. They, uh, and, oh, I'm about to launch a YouTube channel, and I'll, I'll give you information about that that you, you can link um, fairly soon. Please it's do. It's going to be a, basically a, a public service channel with lots of actionable information about basically how to implement various types of changes that can protect our brain, protect our minds. Um, I've got a book, of course, we, we talked about earlier. I've done a couple TED Talks that folks can find on YouTube. Uh, I did a long lecture that's about two hours that just really dives into the weeds on therapeutic lifestyle change, and it's easy to find. If somebody just goes into the YouTube search box and just types Illardi or Illardi, and, and by the way, it's I-L-A-R-D-I, and depression, they'll be able to pull that up as well. Thank you. Stephen, you are a legend. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful that I got to connect with you. This was a blast. Well, it was great fun for me as well. I, ho I hope it's uh, useful for some folks, and we'll, we'll do it again. Sounds good. Take you good take care. care. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Stephen Alardi. Cool guy. It's a good book. Like I said, it's, what what he say, seven, eight years old now, the book, if not older. Still a great book, The Depression Cure. You can get it on Amazon used for probably five or six bucks. It's well worth a read. I know you know a lot of these foundations that I talk about, the omegas 3s, the sunlight, the exercise, etc. Now, I, I do believe it is a little bit of an oversimplified message for people that have been suffering, that have already tried all of that. If you've already tried all of that, there are deeper issues, you know, gut infections and mitochondrial issues and heavy metal load, things like that that are new to the modern world, those certainly can cause depression, and that is something that I work with very often in the clinic. You just have to dig deeper. However, this approach is going to help at least, I would say, 80% or more of people listening. If you've not already implemented the, the diet, the exercise, the omega-3s, the social gathering, the sunlight, especially bright light in the morning, as I mentioned in the show, the Pure Omega formula that I have in my store back in my website, not just paleo.com, that's a triglyceride form. I wasn't playing around with fish oil. I didn't want to source a fish oil unless I knew it was triglyceride form, and it's over 600 milligrams of EPA for one soft gel. I typically take one a day, but you could take two if you're looking to get that 1,000 milligram dose that Stephen Alardi was talking about. Anyhow, check that out, and then as always, I book a few hours 
a month or block a few hours a month out of my calendar for 15-minute free calls to see if we're a good fit for each other, listen to your health symptoms, your goals, see if we're a good fit for each other. You can schedule that back at the website as well, not just paleo.com. You click that book now button. All right, stay tuned. I'll be putting up more videos on the YouTube channel in between now and next time we chat on the podcast. So I'll see you there. Take care. Bye-bye.